This week on the podcast, we are talking about GDPR and the effect, potential effect, on U.S. nonprofits. This is Using the Whole Whale, stories of data and technology in the social impact world. My name is George Weiner, your host and the chief whaler of wholewhale.com. Thanks for joining us. I'm incredibly excited this week because I have been studying and researching GDPR, General Data Protection Regulations, and in my journeys, I have come across possibly the one of the smartest and most eloquent people speaking about this topic. She is the Director of Digital Civil Society Lab at Stanford PACS, uh, digitalimpact.org, digitalimpact.io, where they have incredible amounts of resources. And uh, Lucy is uh, passionate about this topic and I think explains it in a way that makes it more important and more real, I think, than than just hearing, all right, so-and-so updated their privacy policy. It goes far beyond just checking a couple boxes. This is a change in the way we treat data, the way we treat the data of our stakeholders, uh, be them internal or external, and it's it's a needed shift, and I, I, I absolutely trust uh, what she says and her opinions uh, on, on this matter. Uh, as a disclaimer, and we make the disclaimer in, in the actual interview, uh, we're not lawyers. We can't give you legal advice. We don't know who's listening, what situation you're in. It's important that you understand that and use this as the beginning or continuation of saying, here's what we need to be looking at. Here are the unknown unknowns that, uh, that need to be reviewed. That said, let's get into the interview. And I'm here with Lucy Bernholz, the Director of Digital Civil Society Lab at Stanford PAX. Lucy, thank you for joining us. Can you fill us in on what you do uh, at Stanford PAX? Sure. Um, And thanks for having me, George. It's really fun to be here. The uh, Digital Civil Society Lab at Stanford PAX is a scholarly research lab that works closely with practitioners. We're trying to understand all the ways that the digital age uh, shifts and changes how we voluntarily use our private resources for public good. So in uh, real English, that is, uh, we're trying to understand the effects of our digital dependence on data and and digital infrastructure on the way that nonprofits, foundations, associations, uh, political protest, all of civil society actually works uh, nowadays. And you are, uh, these are my words, not yours, what looks to be a lifelong crusader for the sector, for good things. Your 2010 publication of Disrupting Philanthropy and also your 2004 book on creating philanthropic capital markets, uh, the deliberate evolution. Uh, You putting a lot of great work out there. How did you wander into the world of uh, data to this uh, to this level? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, and thanks for those kind words. I am um, personally and professionally completely committed to this idea of people being able to do things that help other people, right? At the root of it, that's what civil society is all about. We voluntarily get involved to do what we can to do things that help other people. And for decades, we've been, we've been uh, using our time and our money to do those things. 
And over the last 20 years, what's crept up around all of us is our ability to use digital data to serve those same purposes. So I don't know that I wandered into it. I think the world overtook me um, and I've been paying attention to it because you know, long before we were dealing with digitized data, we were well aware of the power of information. And now we've got that information in a digitized form. So that's what we're trying to understand and and prompt people to be really deliberate and conscientious about. So Lucy, just speaking to the audience, really quick, Lucy got my attention. Uh, when I was sitting in a session you were running uh, at an awesome conference and you had everyone in the room hand each other their cell phones. And the moment mm-hmm. that everyone did it, it was a, a sort of like, oh my gosh moment. Uh, because you were like, the amount of sensitive information I have that I can share that now somebody else has access to hits you like a ton of bricks when it's when it's a physical, tangible element. And that's what you see when you look online. You're like, no, 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 no. You're doing that when you bring all of your cookies and information onto a website. You're doing that right now. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of this wake-up call before we move into GDPR discussions? Yeah, I mean, what I what I try to do is um, help people understand what the nature of digitized data in a way that makes sense to them. I mean, underneath it is a lot of other people's really important research and, and economic theory and all of that. But think about how your life has changed since you got a cell phone. And in the last, I think it's now 11 years, 12, I don't know how old the iPhone is, but we've all become truly dependent on these devices and the things they allow us to do. And those devices and the, and the software that run them are designed to make it as easy as possible for us to use them, which means we really don't have to understand what's going on. But once you take a step back and ask yourself, and that's where the phone exercise comes into play, what is going on here? The point I'm trying to get people to understand is that the very thing that's making that thing in your pocket so powerful, the digitized data that's being exchanged and used and stored and remixed it's, it's fundamentally different uh, economic resource from time or money, which is what we're used to dealing with. And that's why we keep finding ourselves in these kind of moments of like, wait, companies are doing what with my data? Or wait, I gave data to whom? Or they're taking, getting data on me how? Or they can re-identify me using what? <laughs> like, you know, sort of unpacking the basic nature of the resource so folks can then build back on top of it um, a set of experience, build on their experiences so that they can really think about what it is you're managing, especially if you're talking about being in a not-for-profit organization. It's not just about managing the data on your own cell phone, your own data. You are now in charge of managing data about other people from other people. And that's what I'm really trying to pivot people to recognizing that this is something to be very deliberate about just the way nonprofits are very deliberate about how they manage their money. They're very deliberate about how they manage their human resources. So the time of the people they work with or who volunteer with them, we need to be very deliberate about how we use digitized data and digital infrastructure. And maybe that's a perfect moment to pivot now into GDPR. Now, if this is the first time you've heard this acronym SOUP, uh, good, but not good. Lucy, if someone is uh, staring blankly at why we're talking about GDPR, can you give us the 30,000-foot view of what's going on and when it takes effect? Sure. So uh, to unpack the acronym, 
the GDPR is the General Data Protection Regulation coming out of the European Union. It is a law and a set of uh, uh, compliance fines that have been in negotiation for about four years, I believe. It's building on previous European Union law. But what happens on May 25th of this year, so in just about, in fact, a month from today, um, the penalty phase kicks into event into, into action. And that's what's got uh, pretty much every big corporation you interact with, as well as your not-for-profit partners paying attention to this. The fines are substantial. Um, if you've noticed, actually, I'll just ask people to pay attention to their own email inbox. Chances are in the last couple of weeks, and this is going to pick up, I don't know when the podcast goes live, but it'll pick up, you're going to start seeing, hey, we've updated our privacy policies from just about every software vendor you use, from MailChimp to Google to PayPal to Snap, you name it, you're going to get an update. Why? Because the law goes into effect on May 25th. <laughs> so that's what's going on here. And it's uh, for your American listeners, for people in the U.S., um, this idea of a general data protection regulation is completely new to us. We don't manage, uh, we don't um, regulate law, uh, data this way. We regulate data within the health sphere, within the financial sphere, within when it has to do with children. But as the name says, this is a general regulation about data protection. All digitized data is what they're talking about here. And so to put that even further into perspective, uh, you were mentioning before is like, the question of like, oh, okay, I'm in the U.S. Does you know I'm in a U.S. not-for-profit organization? Does this apply to me? And yeah. your answer was like, if you have a website. Yeah. Uh, my answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> my answer is yes for two reasons. Uh, practically, if you have a website that people sign up for, for anything using that website, or if you have an email list. Um, that people are, you know, signing up for. You can't stop a EU resident from seeing that website uh, and po- and logging in and or you know checking it out and possibly signing up for something. And it's the the law specifically applies to the people who are residents of the EU. Now. You don't want to get into, you know, having to know about their citizenship status or anything like that. If there's a resident of the EU who's hitting your website, you are by law covered by this regulation. That's reason number one, and that's the, the, the stick reason. The carrot reason is that what's contained within the GDPR is a rights-based framework to thinking about data as the right and property of you, George, or me, Lucene. My data is my data. George's data is George's data. And the data from, and this now is the way it's structured for residents of the EU. That actually, that approach is the one that we strongly believe nonprofits should be taking regardless of the law. That this is actually the same way they treat people who are donating money. It's the same way they treat their volunteers and the people they work with. That the resources that people bring are theirs. And that's what's at the root of the GDPR. By the way, the GDPR didn't just kind of come out of nowhere. It is the result of advocacy and, and hard efforts of digital rights groups, among other groups, for, for a long period of time in Europe. And the Europeans have long had 
a different set of norms and expectations about personal privacy than the U.S. has. But I want to point out that it's the U.S. that's the outlier here. It's not the European Union or the sense of uh, privacy that is held by uh, sort of manifest in European countries. Those those are more common norms globally than the U.S., uh, which has this kind of free for all approach, doesn't protect data as a general thing yet, although I bet you that's going to change um, and has allowed it to be kind of something that we expect companies to just take and use because that's the way we allowed the Internet to grow. So I won't go on too much longer, but the norm <laughs> we're used to about um, this isn't mine. It belongs to the company who's taking it from me. Um, that's the outlier position, the position that this is that my digitized data information about me from me is mine is a more common global standard. And what the EU GDPR is doing is raising up that standard over the minority U.S. approach that's been exported via the power of our big tech companies. Yeah. And in understanding this, it has with many things a bit of a pendulum. And we have watched the pendulum swing toward the Wild West, quite literally. Yeah. We've watched it swing where it's become normal to know that, all right, they got my email, which now, is, now means they can do a wealth scrape, append information, pull in my cookie data, pair that together, then hit me with ads and mail and emails nonstop. Uh, almost indefinitely because, oh, yeah, I gave it to them and now that's theirs to keep. And it's like, oh, well, uh, I like your explanation and sort of anchoring to like the EU is not crazy or crazy. Uh, can you talk to a little bit more <laughs> how the genesis of this, um, you know, I threw a dart and said, like, you know, the experience of World War II was very different uh, in terms of the use and misuse of data during that period of time. Uh, do you think that is a genesis moment? for the the larger fork between our our cultures on this oh i could take you back to the u.s constitution if you wanted or all the constitutions okay, here's of what, all liberal democracies look, but i know i, I know that you're at an educational institution here's what i'm going to give you you get two minutes to give us a micro history lesson i will literally cut you off ready okay no Set. i don't even need two minutes i i just need to, <laughs> go i just need folks to understand that um, I mean, actually, you want to go to let's go to the middle of the 20th century and look at the U.N. Declaration of Human Rights. I did uh, follow World War Two um, and uh, acknowledges and recognizes and instantiates privacy as a human right. Now, any U.S. citizen knows that privacy as a right of U.S. citizens um, constitutionally is a highly debatable uh, right. It, the word privacy does not appear in the U.S. Constitution. And anybody who's been paying attention to um, major political issues like reproductive rights or gun rights uh, knows this. Right. Privacy is protected under a search thing in the U.S. in the Fourth Amendment search, uh, search and seizure. But the word privacy does not appear. It appears bright and bold in the U.N. Declaration of Human Rights. Um, so for a long time, for decades, let's say, if not longer, and I'd argue longer, there have been globally and in the European Union, yes, you can point to the experience of authoritarian governments in Europe and elsewhere that makes individual people um, more active in protecting their own privacy, 
the norm that's been exported via the six big U.S. tech companies that have really, uh, for their corporate purposes and the business model built on data scraping and data reuse, um, went in a very different direction. It simply, you know, uh, started from a sense of we can use digitized data about people. Um, the more of it we can gather and use, the more we can build a businesses based on advertising. Um, and that's since everybody stepped into the digital age, you know, in the last 20 years, the power of those companies, the power of those businesses um, set a set of norms that have been uh, exported around the world. What the GDPR, the, e the European law is doing um, ever since uh, the Internet became an e-commerce machine, the Europeans have been pushing back on various parts of this and the GDPR steps up that game. Again, I want to emphasize that um, most of the, the activists and the scholars who really look deeply and have been involved in creating the GDPR will remind us that the law itself, what it says about data, um, is not all that new. What's new is the fact that the fines on those who violate these practices are enormous. 4% of annual revenue um, can be assessed as a fine. And so you better believe that the Facebook and Googles of the world are paying attention to a fine that could, you know, become 4% of annual revenue. I point out to a nonprofit listening to this, go ahead, calculate 4% of your annual budget, and you probably want to pay attention as well. Yeah. And at this point, you know, we have, you know, the, the weight of a massive fee, and we're in the land of the stick. We're in the land yeah. of, all right, do this or else. And that's how you know, the, the EU needs to shake awake, frankly, the unchecked capitalism's use of data and misuse of data uh, in a real way. And and as you mentioned before, the U.S. is coming. So this isn't a hopefully viewed as just as a massive annoyance, a massive, huge ton of work that's going to be hoisted upon you. But more, it seems like where you're pushing uh, the conversation toward an opportunity to do the right thing with data. So let's move on to that. Like, uh, all right, Lucy, here we go. Imagine you're a mid-size uh, not-for-profit organization in the U.S. Like, what? Like, what are the next steps that you're looking to do uh, as a best practice around data? So, if you haven't already done this, and this is something uh, we uh, have been encouraging people and providing resources for them to do, and and so have good consultants and good conversations about this. The very first thing you actually need to do is take an inventory of the digitized data that your organization has. Um, because the word data is really uh, confusing. Uh, people, uh, it brings up an image of spreadsheets and numbers, right? But photographs are digital, digital photographs are digitized data. Uh, uh, this video, this audio recording is digitized data. Uh, your personnel files at your organization, your salary histories, uh, your email addresses, um, everything that's uh, printed out on your network's printer, all of that is digitized data. That takes me right back to the phone exercise. That's why I try to focus people in on, this is not about whether or not you have you know, a really robust Twitter account. It's about whether or not your people who work for you have email addresses, cell phone numbers, and network printers. If so, you're living in a world of digitized data. So if you're going to manage something, if you're going to govern it toward mission, the first thing you need to do 
is is know what you have. Uh, there are inventory practices, there's inventory toolkits, there's inventory templates. All of this, by the way, we make available on uh, digitalimpact.io, which is our toolkit. Uh, the Run Responsible Data Forum makes a lot of this available for free. You don't need to go out and start paying consultants a lot of money to do this. First step is is get the inventory in place. Second step is go through that and prioritize what of it looks um, sensitive, uh, uh, which of it uh, do you know where that data is being held now? Um, and when you go through the process of identifying what you have, where it is, and who's responsible for it, here's what you're going to recognize. And this, I, I like to make small bets, so I'll, I'll make this a small bet. I bet when an organization does those three things, it's going to recognize that it has a ton of data, it's everywhere, and everyone in the organization is responsible for it. <laughs> which is by the easy answer, which everyone likes to uh, hope they can put in place, which is, I know, we'll just hire, uh, you know, Madeline, and she'll be our CTO, and she'll take care of it. It's not going to work. If everybody in your organization has an email address, everybody in your organization is managing digitized data. So that's the first step. Second step is uh, th those three steps are the first step. What do you have? Where is it? Who's responsible for it? You'll recognize that you've got it everywhere. It's all over the place. So then you've got to figure out what are the policy frames that you've already put in place to pay attention to this. Most people, most organizations of your mid-sized nonprofit, as you described it, you can have a website, which means you have a probably have a privacy policy about the data that comes from the website. Now is a really good time to look at that privacy policy, look at um, the rest of the data you've just identified and figure out, do you have the right suite of policies in place to cover all of the different kinds of data that you've just identified that you have? And you can begin triaging at that point. You'll start to recognize that some of it is going to be uh, more uh, sensitive uh, than some other information uh, that you have. And you can start triaging in that way. If you go to digitalimpact.io, you'll see the rest of the policy suites that are there. We also have a full set of GDPR, um, what to do next kind of guidelines. And you can start working your way through um, through some of those. Some of the data that organizations have in the U.S., they will already be managing in line with a set of sector-specific policies, their financial data. If they have any health data, if they have data on children, they're probably already on top of those things. Um, but uh, you want to make sure that you're doing a, a robust inventory of what you have, a robust inventory of where it is, a, a robust inventory of which policies you already have in place. And then at that point, you can bring in um, the GDPR and say, OK, what do we have? Does it align with what we see in these in these regulations? What do we need to what's the process we need to create to bring it into alignment with this new set of uh, uh, regulations that as they apply to us? At that point, I highly recommend bringing in a lawyer. But, you know, lawyers are expensive and the more you can do on your own. Great. But this is a set of compliance issues. So you're going to have to get the lawyers involved. Yeah. And I think this is a good obvious note here to say that uh, neither of us are lawyers, nor is this legal advice. 
this is practical advice for the next steps to, to take with your organization with regard to, to data and data management. Um, you know, I do think the way that this is written um, actually is, you know, mostly English, frankly. When you look through the uh, eight stated rights, uh, they're, they're clearly expressed. And so if you haven't, you know, I may go through them really quickly, but they're in English. It, it's the way you'd kind of wanted and hoped that organizations were treating your data. Uh, but it, it's interesting to look at it from really the lens of uh, what you have to actually do to really protect uh, this information. Uh, you know, maybe this is a good point of going into what is the upside uh, of compliance? Like, how is this uh, a good thing rather than just a mountain of work we didn't realize we had coming this year? So um, let me put it this way. Uh Anybody in the U.S. who was um, not living under a rock last week um, heard about or maybe even watched uh, Mark Zuckerberg uh, testify, uh, present before Congress, right? Um, you don't ever want to be in that position. You don't want to be in that position for two reasons. One, um, you don't have Mark Zuckerberg's lawyers at your back. Two, the way Facebook has been treating our data as individual people is possibly, you could make the argument, although this is what Zuckerberg is apologizing for, um, in line with Facebook's business incentives, right? Facebook is a commercial company. It makes money as an advertising platform. That's what it does. Whatever nonprofit you're running, that's not the business you're in. You're in the business of helping people somehow, some way. So just as the nonprofit sector has for a century distinguished itself from the commercial sector and the public sector by the way it manages private resources for public benefit, this is one more private resource that we need to figure out how to manage for public benefit. The private resource is the digitized data of the people you interact with, board, staff, beneficiaries, constituents, partners, that's their digitized data. And that's an, that's something the GDPR makes makes very clear that the data is belongs to the person from whom it comes. And that is the standing, that's the, the positioning that the nonprofit sector should be taking toward this resource. We're not in the business of making money and we're not in the business of being a government. You're using a, a you know, a, a voluntarily uh, donated resource for public benefit. So that's the that's the kind of abstract argument for why civil society organizations should be operating this way to begin with. It's in line with the purpose of the entire sector uh, in democracies. In terms of your particular organization, think about the conversations your staff and your board have with the people you interact with. Again, about the other resources you use. If you start Doing the wrong thing with the money, that's not going to go over well. If you start doing the wrong thing and violating people's uh, voluntary commitments of their time or the way they're treated as staff, doesn't work well. It's not mission-aligned. What we're looking for here are mission-aligned approaches to using this new new resource. Um, third reason, I'll give you three more. One is um, because uh, the GDPR is out there. Um, better to comply with it than not, because your uh, your your digital presence matters to achieving your mission. No doubt that website, those email lists, they're important. 
Um, they help you get the word out and they help you get the funds in. And finally, uh, back to last week's congressional testimony, um, I, I don't know what the new U.S. laws are going to be, but they're going to be. <laughs> they're going to be. It's... I don't know what they're going to be, but they're going to be. So start cleaning up your act now. Yeah. Uh, not only is it the right thing to do, it's going to be the required thing to do um, in the not-too-distant yeah. future. I'll just put one more plug in here on a, a fifth point. I alluded to it when I was talking about how where the GDPR came from. There is a very robust part of civil society, our sister nonprofits, if you will, right here in the U.S. and around the world, who are the ones advocating for this approach to digitize data, to recognize it, to recognize our human right to privacy, to recognize our right to control our own data. Uh, and that agenda, the digital rights policy agenda that's going to determine what those laws that are going to be are going to be is actually the policy agenda of all nonprofits. And we should each and every one of us get engaged in understanding what those sister organizations are advocating for. We should get our associations behind them. We should join in that conversation. That policy fight is our policy fight. Yeah. And I think that's, um, you know, incredibly helpful to, to realize that this is something of, uh, beyond best practice, but if we care about the people we're helping, we have to do this the right way. And, exactly. and we can lead on this. You know, the, the most innovative, um, low cost, low weight, technical, uh, human and policy interactions about using data well are going to come from the not-for-profit sector. We're the ones who are creating new consent processes that people understand and that are lightweight and can still get us the information we need to do our jobs. We're the ones who are creating digital infrastructure that aligns with privacy by design principles and to protect privacy by default. We're the ones who are showing that you can, in fact, learn from data without having to violate the individual rights of, of people. This is an incredible opportunity for nonprofits to lead. Not, But if we sit back and expect companies that make money off of not doing these things to be our models, well, we're not going to get very far. Yeah. All righty. To take a Back to, you know, some of these companies, as you said, we're going to be getting alerts, notifications via email and otherwise uh, of the providers we use. Once we do the audit, it seems like the, one of the next steps, obviously getting a lawyer, but also is paying attention to what the data processors like yeah. MailChimp or Google Analytics or any myriad of tools that you're using on on your website. What are they saying? What are they saying to update? You're not alone in this. This is a lot of actors working together, uh, trying to get in line. So this is not a moment to put your head in the sand, uh, yeah. I would say. Uh, what else, Lucy, in terms of like the, those next steps uh, would you want to share before we're signing off here? Yeah, actually, and I'm glad you brought that up because th that's a step actually before you bring the lawyers and, um, of course, bring the pro bono ones in soon. Bring, bring the ones, you know, billing by the 15-minute sections in as late as possible. But um, you are getting those updates in your email. So as you are uh, doing that inventory, the next step after you or part of that step of the the what, the where and the who, the where and the who, um, you're going to you're going to remind yourself when you go through that process that a lot of the what and the who are vendors to you. It's MailChimp, it's Google Docs, it's Salesforce, it's um, 
Uh, it's uh, wherever you store your online photos that you then have upload automatically into your, you know, your your website. It's it, there's a whole lot of third parties there. Um, they are paying. They should be if they're not switch vendors. <laughs> find a set of vendors who are complying, you know, who are doing that update and then take some time to go through those vendor relationships um, and the, the language that they're sending you and figure out if if that feels most in line with what your organization is all about. And again, you know, it's really hard. One, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not giving any legal advice. But two, I don't know who I'm talking to. Yeah. And every nonprofit is 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 going to have a little bit of tweaks to this. So for some nonprofits, um, they're going to be when you start looking at the context of those privacy policies in terms of service, which you've never wanted to read for yourself. I get it. They're not the most fascinating reading. But when you're you have a legal contract relationship with this vendor, you somebody at your staff better be reading that stuff. Some of it is going to align with the way you want to treat the people you work with, and some of it isn't. And that's an opportunity then to say, well, maybe we need to switch vendors. Maybe I want to be with, you know, X over Y. Or, you know, I dug into this and I realized that, hey, this major uh, vendor that allows me to easily set up invitations and host my events and manage you know, uh, how many people are registering and how many people are coming, right? That vendor says, oh, yeah, by the way, we reserve the right to attend your event. We reserve the right to video your event. We reserve the right to take all of the information about everybody who's attended your event. And now we're going to use it as well. And you might look at that and go, hmm, maybe there's another way for me to host my event scheduling. I think I know who you're talking about. I think they (laughs) immediately rolled that back to some degree. Yeah. So I don't, you know, so, but that's what you want to start looking into. Yeah. So, you know, maybe we should start having uh, cocktail parties or coffee gatherings in communities where all the nonprofits come together with all of the terms of service that nobody wanted to read. And we foster <laughs> people up and we say, hey, you turn guys. Turn it into a drinking game. Oh exactly. Gosh, what a good or, drinking you know, game that would be. Don't drink. So we'll turn it into, you know, I don't know, beer. Okay. Absolutely. Without the, the beer. But, um, we could divvy people up. You'd handle the event processors. I'll handle the the email list, folks. We'll look at the website hosts. You know, and I think we just came up with a really uh, terribly unfun, possibly fun party idea. Oh come on, we could make it a good time. You make we it. We would a make it a good game. Time. You have a couple of prizes. We could get this knocked out um, in <laughs> a day. You could do it with your three best nonprofit, or, or you know, a lot of your listeners are probably um, in some kind of. Uh, alliance or coalition or collaboration with some other nonprofits. So what if he just made a deal? You guys go through the email lists and we'll go through the the web hosts and we'll, you know, next time we meet and figure out how our alliance should handle our human resources, we'll have a conversation about how we handle our digital resources. It doesn't have to be painful. I should point out that that inventory process. And again, you can find the templates for some templates. There's lots of them out there, but we host a, a series of them on digital impact for people to download for free, modify, use. But we've had groups do their data inventory for their organization in 90 seconds or less. Yeah, we break it into 90 second increments and then you give everybody a cupcake, right? I love those cupcakes. I love exactly where this is right now, but I uh, I have a few. I have one more piece I have to ask you before we're we're off. Um, and it it takes it to a different uh, potential 
thing that's keeping me awake. Um, I always look at different options and sides of sides of a coin, and and right now some of the, like there are potential threats I see to uh, the GDPR coming out that could be used to attack potentially controversial organizations doing great works uh, in the U.S. and abroad. Uh, and some of the holes that I see on the side, and I just want your general response is potentially the the use of data information requests that technically are are now allowed from individuals individual users for removal or access could be done at high volume such to overwhelm the organization so that they wouldn't meet the 30-day requirements also organizations can just be reported in mass uh, to the ico.org.uk uh, and even if the ico doesn't charge I th- i'm pretty sure according to article 82 individuals have legal basis to sue for material and non-material damages due to data abuses uh it seems like there's a, like a lot of side doors here like this kind of keeps me awake at night knowing that there are actors on both sides. I, I don't know. What is your response to this, Lucy? Well, first of all, I want to um, tip my hat to you because I think um, a lot of technology has been built and adopted by the nonprofit sector writ large over the last decades um, without paying enough attention to the way it could be used by bad actors. Um, so I think your concerns are, you know, Again, you laid out a few of them there. So, but in general, completely legitimate. Um, there are definitely opportunities for someone opposed to your policy agenda or your issue agenda to, um, you know, whatever the, the new version of, um, DDoS attacks is going to be, right? Where you just start demand overwhelming an organization with demands for data takedowns. Um, they, they're, they're not, um, I'm sorry they're keeping you up at night. <laughs> um, I think for most organizations, well, I don't want to say that. For organizations that are doing the kind of work where uh, that uh, the, the early adopters of that kind of malicious intent uh, is going to happen, so that's journalists, environmental rights activists, um, reproductive rights activists in the U.S., um, uh, some, uh, you know, Folks on might be seen in, on a civil rights uh, progressive liberal end, and some who might be seen on a really strong and far end conservative political end. Um, they they're already if they don't um, factoring those opportunities into their threat models um, and 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 battening down uh, yeah. you know, sort of battening down there. Threat modeling is a term. I don't know if your organization, if the folks listening have heard it, it's um, it, it's part of good data governance to have figured out what, what are the threats to your organization? Where do they lie? There are some new ones um, uh, here, perhaps. Um, I don't want to say that none of what George's uh, uh, nightlife is <laughs> full of doesn't matter. Um, but I think, uh, I'd focus my limited energy on getting the basic pieces in place and, and, and continue to, uh, factor those issues into my basic organizational threat modeling. And if threat modeling isn't something that your organizations are familiar with and know how to do, point you to digitalimpact.io and responsibledata.io and reiterate the point I've been making all along, that digital data is a new resource and your organization is responsible for it and figuring out how it can be used both to achieve your mission and to prevent uh, someone from causing harm to your mission and your um, constituents is your primary responsibility as a not-for-profit leader. 
Lucy, this has been an awesome conversation. I know it because at least you've made one listener, myself, when I re-listen to this, happy. Uh, thank you so much. As a final sign-off, Lucy, how do people find you? How do people help you? Yeah, so the digitalimpact.org is where we host a, a wide variety of community resources. There's conversations, there's blog posts, there's ways to interact with other members of the community. There's ways to find some of the um, there's a whole GDPR conversation happening there, a curated set of resources and materials. So join us there. Um, anybody can participate in those conversations and you'll find the rest of what we do up on that site. And linked off of that site is the digitalimpact.io um, uh, toolkit where we have the templates and the process for folks uh, really going through this uh, data governance um, uh, experience. I want to... Um, uh, shout out responsibledata.io as well, which is a community you can join, um, when, a really interactive community of organizations and people working hard on these issues, and they have been for a long time. Um, and uh, so join us. Brilliant. Well, thanks again for your time. This has been uh, incredibly helpful. Have a good one. Thanks, George. Well, you have your next steps. You have the reason why you should take them. Please get get going. You know, t- check out digitalimpact.org, uh, digitalimpact.io. We'll have a lot of resources uh, for this episode number 93 in wholewell.com slash podcast. Uh, I do want to, while I have your attention, talk through very quickly the actual rights and, and kind of what they mean so you can get an idea of the general areas of GDPR so it doesn't seem like a giant... Uh, impossible Gordian knot uh, if this is the first time you're hearing about it. It is written in English, so I'm going to rifle through them. The, the eight rights that they talk about, the first one is the right to access. This means that individuals have the right to request access to their personal data and to ask how their data is used by the company after it has been gathered. The company must provide a copy of the personal data free of charge in electronic format if requested. Number two, right to the right to be forgotten if consumers are no longer customers or if they withdraw their consent from a company to use their personal data, then they have the right to have their data deleted. Right number three, the right to data portability. Individuals have a right to transfer their data from one service provider to another, and it must happen in a commonly used machine-readable format. Number four, the right to be informed. This covers any gathering of data by companies and individuals that must be informed before data is gathered. Consumers have to opt in for their data to be gathered, and consent must be freely given rather than implied. Right, number five, the right to have information corrected. This ensures that individuals can have their data updated if it is out of date, incomplete, or incorrect. Number six, the right to restrict processing. Individuals can request that their data is not used for processing. Their record can remain in place, but not used. Number seven, the right to object. This includes the right of individuals to stop processing of their data for direct marketing. There's no exceptions to this rule, and any processing must stop as soon as the request is received. In addition, this right must be made clear to individuals at the very start of any communication. Number eight, the right to be notified. 
If there has been a data breach which compromises any individual's personal data, the individual has a right to be informed within 72 hours of first having become aware of the breach. Okay, there are a lot of words there. There's a lot of work to be done, but that that is how it is. We have access to incredibly powerful tools, more so than ever before in human history. These tools, in some ways, have gone unchecked, and we're watching the pendulum swim, swing backward, and uh, I think net-net it will be positive, but I'm not going to lie. Uh, I'm going to end this podcast and get to work on this. Thank you so much for listening. This is episode 93, and there'll be a lot of resources. Take care. This has been Using the Whole Whale, stories of data and technology in the social impact world. Resources, as always, may be found at wholewhale.com slash podcast. Thanks for joining us. As always, Greg Thomas, the wizard, the master, the guy behind the scenes making sure that this sounds decently done, EQ'd, compressed, and musically adjusted. Thank you, Greg. Uh, and for his music stylings, uh, gregthomasmusic.org is where you can find him.